one of the things that we learned in school, or hopefully we learned it, is we learned about the chemical elements, right? You remember back in science class, we learned about the chemical elements that make up what is called the periodic table of elements. The periodic table is a tabular arrangement of the chemical elements organized on the basis of their atomic numbers, the electron configurations, and the reoccurring chemical properties. Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev is generally credited with publishing the first widely recognized periodic table in 1969. Today there are 118 recognized elements on the periodic table with 98 of them occurring naturally. One of the most common combinations of these elements on the periodic table is known almost universally is the compound that we know of H2O, right? I mean, if you know anything about the periodic table and a combination of those elements, you know this, right? H2O, it, what is it? It's water. H2O equals water, water equals H2O. Water is a chemical compound comprised of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. And when this combination of elements combine in this way, you get water. And water is one of the things that makes life on Earth possible. Without water, we wouldn't have life. This combination of the natural elements of hydrogen and oxygen is absolutely critical to having and sustaining life at all. And just like there is a right combination of the right elements to make water, when it comes to the Christian life, there's a combination of elements that make up the true Christian life. Do you have these elements in your life? Well, let's see. The Apostle John wrote five books of the New Testament. The Gospel of John, the Revelation, and then three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In his epistle, he, in this 1st John, what is known as 1st John, John discusses things that are the attributes of God, they're kind of the elements of God, things that God is, and then he also talks about those things being critical, essential to the Christian life. One of those things early on in the, in the epistle is that he talks about is light. God is light. And when we come into the kingdom of God, when we give our lives to Christ, we become light as well. Remember Jesus told, he preached it on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the light of the world. He's the light of the world. He came into the world and he makes those who follow him also light. There are a couple other important elements that are absolutely critical to the formulation of a true Christian life. And we're going to look at those things tonight. What are those fundamental elements? The fundamental spiritual elements of a child of God. Well, the first element 
that you need to be a Christian, to have spiritual life, is God himself. Amen? (laughs) Without God, without him, we are nothing, right? Without God himself, we're nothing. And that's exactly what happens when we come into the kingdom of God at salvation, also known as regeneration, that moment that you are made alive in Christ, God takes his spirit and he puts his spirit inside of you. And this is why the apostle Paul says he's put his spirit in you that you might be able to cry out, Abba, Father. Okay? So the first thing that we have in our lives as Christians is God. It's if Hey, it's a deal breaker. If you don't have God, you're not a believer in Christ. You're not a Christian. You must have God. You must have the spirit of God to be a child of God. So in that sense, God is the fundamental element. He's the key ingredient. But there are two other critical elements that make up the equation or the combination that make up the true Christian life, the attributes of a true child of God. So just like H2O, I kind of came up with my own kind of thing, okay? Tonight, it's... G-R-L, okay? So you've got H2O equals water. A Christian equals G-R and L. Of course, the G stands for God, right? The G stands for God. Now here in our text in 1 John 3, we'll see the two other absolutely critical elements to the child of God. And what are they? The first one is righteousness, The R is righteousness, and the other one is L. That's the love of God. Amen? So God plus righteousness plus the love of God equals the true Christian life. Amen? So that's what we're going to take a look at tonight. First, let's take a look at righteousness. 1 John chapter 3, uh, let's pick it up at verse 10. He says this. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Right here from verse 10. John gives us the two fundamental elements to the child of God. You have God, and then he says you've got to have righteousness, and you've got to have love. You've got to have these three things together in order to to identify yourself as a believer in Christ, someone that has truly been born again. Righteousness and love are key. The apostle John puts it this way. If you were to put yourself 
under the microscope, if God had a microscope, and he's going to examine, he's going to look at your chemical compound. <laughs> he's going to see, okay, we got the spirit of God, but where's the R and the L? We need the R and the L, okay? so Because we've got to have all three things, and if we've got all three things, we've got a child of God. Amen? And if you put your life under the microscope, you only see two kinds of people. Two kinds of people are what become clearly evident. Children of God and children of the devil. Look at the way he put it. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So you've got the children of God and you've got the children of the devil. Now, hey, if you've been, if you've been listening to me at all, Okay, you know that this all goes back to Genesis and the battle of seeds and the whole thing is about which seed, which family are you a part of, right? Remember, God spoke to the serpent and he said, I'm gonna put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. So there's gonna be these two seeds in the world. There's two families. Which one are you a part of? Who's your daddy? right? <laughs> Who's your daddy is the ultimate question, really. And, and so are you a child of God or are you a child of the devil? So this is the fundamental question. Now, there isn't a third class of people. There isn't a third class of people. You've either got a child of God or you don't. When you look at a chemical substance and you're trying to find water, you either have to have H2O or you don't have it. You either got the two hydrogen and the oxygen and thus you've got water or you don't have it, right? And that's what we're looking at here. So you have to look at the questions, the proper questions. Do you have God's spirit in you? Do you have the G in this spiritual compound of the spiritual life, the child of God? Second, do you have righteousness? Do you have righteousness? This is pretty cut and dry as well. God's standard to get into heaven is absolute perfection, right? He says, be holy as I am holy. This is the standard. This is God's standard. Now, the bad news is that we don't come anywhere close to that. That's the bad news. So the only way you are going to have righteousness is if that you receive it from God and, and it has been given into your life. So there are, well, really the Bible presents there's two, there's two ways to righteousness. We looked at this in Romans, right? There are two ways that you could have righteousness. The first way is absolute moral perfection according to God's law. And as we went through Romans, we discovered that that is not possible. <laughs> it's just not possible. There's only one person who's ever done it, who's ever came into this world and made it out of here. <laughs> Perfect according to that standard, according to the law. And his name is Jesus. So no one can do it. And we see that here in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, you're very familiar with the verse. I'll throw it on the screen behind me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
So there is really only one way to get the righteousness that you need, and that is that you have to have it given to you by Christ. Amen? It has to be gifted to you. Paul says this in Romans, in that same chapter, right above that, beginning in verse 21. I'll also throw this on the screen. He says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. What's that? Listen to what Paul said. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. What's he saying? That there's an amazing thing that came on the scene, a righteousness apart from the law through faith in Christ and that it is given, it is on all and given to all who believe. So God gives us his righteousness. He gives righteousness to all who believe and have faith in Christ. So we see the progression of what this righteousness produces in the life of the believer. Your gifted righteousness. You're given grace. You're given the grace of God. The gift of God is forgiveness of your sins, right? When God comes in, and you use these big theological terms, but it's helpful to understand them. Justification, right? You're justified by faith in Christ. You're, it's justified as you've been made right. You've been given the gift of righteousness. You've been made right. And then you go into a process of sanctification. You're sanctified and set apart. And then through the work of the Holy Spirit, through his word, he begins to separate your walk and your talk and your thought life. He begins to separate that out so that you begin to walk in righteousness, amen? And this all happens, why? Because you've been gifted the gift of God, you've been gifted the righteousness of God. Because grace has been imparted into your life, Paul told Timothy, he says, the grace of God teaches us how we ought to be, that we should reject ungodliness in our lives. So the grace of God and the gift of God's righteousness in our lives is not a license to continue to do whatever it is that we want to do, but it's kind of the, the implanting of his grace into our lives and his righteousness into our lives so that we can begin to be truly sanctified in him. Amen? So we see this progression that we begin to have righteous conduct. We've been made right, and we've been, we begin to have righteous conduct in our lives. We're given his righteousness, and it in turn produces righteous conduct in us. When we see that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but now that we've been made alive, we are to walk in righteous conduct that God has prepared for us. Now, God didn't just save you and give you righteousness for, you know, th th that's it, for no reason. He gave it to you so that you would walk in the good deeds and the righteous acts that he has preordained for you to walk in. 
And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I'll throw the verse up on the screen behind me. Paul says this. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, as a Christian, this should be one of your favorite verses. Amen. I love it because it says we are God's workmanship, right? We are God's workmanship. Now, when you think of workmanship, I don't know what you think of, but I'm going to help you understand the word a little bit better. In the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, when Paul wrote this, he used the word poema. The word workmanship there is the word poema. And it is where, it is from this word that we get our word for poem, a poem, right? What is a poem? A poem is a carefully constructed arrangement of words in rhyme, rhythm, and meaning. Perhaps you read a poem on your Valentine card yesterday, right? You read, you know, maybe it wasn't that good. You know, maybe you read the poem on the card and you said, well, I could write poems for, I could write cards for, for Hallmark or Dayspring or whoever it is, right? And we used to do this in our family. You know, we'd say, I'm not giving you a card. I'm going to give you an oral card, right? Happy birthday. Hope you have a great day. We love you a whole lot. Yay. You know? <laughs> Congratulations. I wish you a happy birthday, and I saved myself five bucks. <laughs> But when, God, when Paul uses the word here, workmanship, he says, you're, you're God's workmanship. You're God's poema. You're God's poema. So God makes us his masterpiece by giving us his righteousness so that we can walk in the good works, the righteous conduct that John is talking about in our text tonight, that Paul is talking about in this passage in Ephesians 2 in the verse. I don't know if it's still up there on the screen. No, it's gone. Ephesians 2, for you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if you don't have someone who is practicing righteousness... You, you have to really kind of back up and, and look at it and say, okay, what is happening here? It's not talking about someone who doesn't sin, right? We dove right into 1 John chapter 3. What we didn't read is 1 John chapter 2, where John talks about that if we claim not to have sin, that we deceive ourselves, but if we do sin, that we have a righteous advocate, Jesus Christ, who is that advocate on our behalf. And in the first chapter, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So maybe you've heard me explain this before, but the difference between a non-believer and a believer is that a non-believer is walking and they're walking in an unbroken course of sin in their life. That, that it's, it's not broken they're, because they're, they're not, they're, they're nowhere in their life is 
righteousness having been granted by God, by faith in God. And so they're walking in unrighteousness. When you come into Christ, you receive the gift of God's righteousness, although you may sin in a moment, you may sin somewhere along that path, but you're walking in a course of righteousness. And that's why we need to confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we get back up and we continue to walk with the Lord. Amen? So we, so we have the true, uh, the true character of a believer. Now, the third major element that we see being manifest in the life of a true believer, going back to verse 10 of 1 John 3, he says, by this we know, I'm sorry, that's verse 16. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So we see that love is a fundamental element of the believer. Amen? If love is not manifest in your life, then you have to really take a look. And I would really, this is a real thing to look at in your life because I'm gonna reference a verse later that it's literally the love of God that would identify us as true believers in Christ. And so if we're looking through our lives and it's very difficult to find the love of God in our lives, we've gotta really take an inventory of what's going on in our lives. The child of God has received God's love, his agape love, and in turn, he loves God and his neighbor as himself. So you receive the love of God, and then in turn, you love God and you love your neighbor. These are the two great commandments, right? And this is how we can begin to recognize that we have the love of God in our lives, that we, that we love God. Do you love God? Do, do you want to be with God? Do you want to go to heaven and be with God? You say, well, these are simple questions. No, these are great questions. Because honestly, some would not answer those questions in the affirmative. Right? So we've got to look at our lives. The two great commandments in Matthew chapter 22 Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, and he answered in Matthew 22, verse 37 and 38. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. In order to walk in the righteousness of these two commands, God first gives you his spirit, his righteousness, and gives you his love. Amen? You say, well, how am I going to love God like that? That sounds pretty exhaustive. And I mean exhaustive meaning all-inclusive, not like tiresome. <laughs> right? Although it might seem tiresome. Love him with all your strength. Love him with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we need the love of God. We need the love of God. 
Now, why would we love God? Why would we love God at all? Well, John tells us in the next chapter in this epistle, in 1 John 4, 19, I'll throw that verse on the screen. It says this, we love him because he first loved us. We love him because we first loved us. And I don't have this in my notes, but I want to I, I wanna share this with you. The reason why we have love anyways in the world is because there was first love in the Godhead. You see this because Jesus explains this to his disciples. He says, I love you. The Father has loved me, and I have loved you. So there's a progression of the love of God. There's first love in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Because there's love in the Godhead, that love is given into the earthly family so that we can operate in that same oxygen, if you will, (laughs) that you have in the Godhead. Amen? And so we love him because he first loved us. And if we have received God's love for us, then in the life of a true child of God, that love is manifest back towards God, to God, that we love God with everything that we've got. And we love those around us. Amen? John says, this is what you have heard from the beginning. Look at that. Verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. This is the, this is the message that you heard from the beginning. I mean, we're not going back. We're, this isn't like down the road. This isn't like, you know, the calculus of, of, of Christianity. This is like the ABCs. This is like the kindergarten. This is, like the, what, this is what you heard from the beginning. Love, the love of God in us and the love of God, loving God and the love of God flowing out of us to those around us. Amen? Jesus, on the night he was arrested, he commanded his disciples, he said, I give you a new commandment. Here's the verse, John 13, 34. I'll have it on the screen. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now the question is, when reading that verse, here's, here's Jesus in the upper room. He's about to celebrate Passover. Then he's going to walk out of there. He's going to walk down the Kidron Valley. He's going to walk up into the, into the uh, Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to pray. He's going to get arrested. He's going to be taken into custody. And he's going to go and give his life. And he says, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment that you love one another. Now, is this a new commandment, like as in brand new, like like a 2020 Tesla? Is it that kind of a new No, it's new in the sense that God that Jesus is saying, I'm putting this at the top, at the foundation, at the foremost. I'm putting this out here in such a way that this is like the whole thing. Amen. 
I want you to love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is going to be the mark that people that follow me have. Love one for another. They're going to love each other. John 13, 35, this, which is the very next verse, <laughs> right? It's up on the screen. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I want to finish this up by contrasting here love and hate. John contrasts it for the believer here. We should love, we shouldn't hate. Let's read it back in 1 John 3. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And he whoever, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Wow, kind of sounds kind of serious, doesn't it? There's a new thing that kind of came along. Well, it's not, nothing new, right? Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, except for he didn't know about the iPhone, right, when he wrote that. But in principle, there's nothing new under the sun. But, you know, a few years ago, there was this whole phenomenon that kind of became a whole thing, and it's still a thing. This whole idea of like, you know, your haters, that you're a guy and you're a guy and then you've got your, your, your detractors and your detractors are your haters, right? And this actually became like a whole thing um, to where you would go out and see shirts and caps and people would wear hats, you know, haters got to hate and this type of stuff. You, don't, you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So the problem with this is, is for the believer, hate is not an option, right? Hate is not an option. We have crimes and murders now that are called hate crimes. See, to go back to the biblical scriptures, that would actually be, the, that, that, that would be like a redundancy, right? So we have like a premeditated murder that can be a hate crime that can be a hate murder, right? But by definition, biblically, premeditated murder was already a hate crime. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you have hate, you've murdered your brother, right? It's very important that when you get involved in this culture, whatever, you got to go back to the words of Christ in the, in the, in the, in the thing. And, and so we can't have hate. There's no room in the life of the believer for hate of one another. The child of God cannot be a hater. The child of God cannot hate. 
The only thing, there is one thing that the shadow guy can hate. That's right, evil. Evil. Paul says in, first, in uh, Romans 9, abhor, hate, abhor what is evil, right? So we need a little bit more of that and a lot less of all the other hate, amen? <laughs> if we actually had that working, we'd be in better shape, amen? Hate is absolutely toxic to the Christian life. You can't be like, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm over here and I'm trying to live for Jesus and whatever. And then you got hate going on over here in your heart. Like in this little corner over here of my heart, I got some hate. Well, no, that, that thing is going to be toxic. It's like a cancer. It's going to spread out into, into your heart and into your perception and into what is happening in your life. And John explains he says, I don't want you to be like Cain. I don't want you to be like Cain because he was literally of the wicked one. The book of Hebrews explains what happened. This, of course, goes back to Genesis 4 when the brothers, remember the brothers, Cain and Abel, they brought their sacrifices to God. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Abel's sacrifice was offered to God in faith and Cain's, on the other hand, was the work of his hands, the fruit of his own energy, and it was, it was rejected. He didn't bring it in obedience in the way that that sacrifice was to be made. And so what happened is that he, he despised his brother, and he allowed hate to come up in his heart. And, and John says here he was of the wicked one, Right? He allowed hate to come up in his heart and he went out and he killed his brother. He didn't care for his brother. He killed his brother, right? Here's what John Corson says about the hatred of Cain. The more successful a person is, the more valuable he is, like Cain, is to jealousy or envy and the more likely he is to make a snide remark about the one of whom he's jealous. Oh, it might be just a word or two, a wink or a chuckle, a nod or a smile. But when I engage in such activity concerning a brother, I know in my heart what I am doing. I'm murdering him. I'm taking him down so that I can raise myself up in my own heart. And that's the seed of hatred and it's of the wicked one. And God wants it out of our hearts. He wants it out of our lives. Amen? So earlier in this passage, and we'll wrap this up. Earlier in, the, in chapter 2 of 1 John, he talks about us being in the light, right? Walk in the light as he is in the light. In verse 9, and I'm going to throw it up on the screen for you, he says this, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And he who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So, what is this saying? If we are truly children of God, then we are different. Amen? We're different people.
We're different people. We don't hate. We aren't haters. We love people. We don't like the sin. In fact, we abhor the sin. We abhor the evil, but we don't hate. Amen? The world may hate us, but we don't hate them back. The world hated Jesus, but he loved the world perfectly. Let's follow in his footsteps, amen? So, let's go back to the beginning. Do you have the fundamental elements of the compound of the child of God? Just like H2O, two hydrogen and an oxygen, and you've got some water. Do you have the compound, the elements that make up the compound of the Christian life? God, righteousness, and love. This is what it means to be a child of God.